Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show we take a look at the poignant documentary Long Live My Happy Head. Paul Howard, author of Russell Carroll Kelly, chats about his favourite movie. Plus, Glass Onion, why are so many people watching it? I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on News Talk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well and a happy new year to you. Haven't been on the air for business as usual in a while, so it's nice to talk to you again. Can you still wish people happy new year the first weekend in January? What would Larry David say? Happy new year. It's a little late, frankly, for the happy new years, you know? Why? Just happened a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, that's too long. Uh, Statute of limitations... It's kind of run out on the New Year's. Three days. Plenty. Three days. By the way, everything doesn't have to be happy. Why does everything have to be happy? Larry David there. (laughs) Telling us not to wish each other a Happy New Year. Uh, My gratitude to my old mucker Joe Donnelly for pointing that out to me on Twitter. I do hope you're well and I will continue to wish you a Happy New Year. And I hope you had a nice Christmas. I got an unusual Christmas gift from my wife. One of the presents she got me was a small hatchet. Yes, a hatchet. Bear with me now. We have this wood stove and the wood was wet and the fire kept going out because the wood wasn't dry enough. So she said, I'm going to get you a hatchet. I thought she was joking, but she did. Here's the thing. Now, if you've lived a very sheltered physical activity life like I have, I've never chopped wood, but I've started it in the last couple of days. And it's a very pleasing experience to have your axe or your hatchet and to chop wood you know I'm thinking of getting one of those lumberjack shirts you know without the without the sleeves just to the shoulder maybe a pair of denim shorts I'll keep you posted but I'm enjoying chopping wood now a movie I want to tell you about at the start of the show this week is this alright now you're going to miss your train when you get down oh, there oh not again mama I've already been to Mississippi only one time before and you started a fight with another little boy he was Picking on me. You're in the right to stand up for yourself, but that's not what I'm talking about. They have a different set of rules for Negroes down there. Are you listening? Yes. You have to be extra careful with white people. You can't risk looking at them the wrong way. I know. Bo, be small down there. Now, that is a clip from Till, which will be released on Friday, the 6th of January. Now, the Till in question is Emmett Till. And there you heard the actor playing him, uh, Jalen Hall, and his mother, his mother Mamie, played brilliantly by Danielle Deadweiler. Emmett was a young man who was lynched and murdered in Mississippi back in 1955 and it was a very famous case because such was the horrific nature of how he died that his mother insisted on having the casket, the coffin open for all to see his horrific bruising particularly to his face and it was a galvanising moment for the civil rights movement as you can imagine and this is a powerful retelling of that story there you have the young Emmett going off to visit his cousins 
and he innocently flirts with a white shopkeeper and then all hell breaks loose and as I say he was brutally murdered and his mother insists on there being an open casket and it tells that story and then Mamie's subsequent campaigning and the horrific trial she had to go through in an attempt to take those responsible to justice it's a very powerful movie it's obviously not a light movie I do think that Danielle for Oscars uh, for best Oscar for best actress for in the Oscars which we'll hear about on the 24th of January so Till is a fantastic film and uh, not an easy watch but a very important watch and the in the way as actually happened in life the mother of Emmett Mamie didn't shy away from showing the world what had happened to her son in this movie the same thing happens and it is a real punch in the stomach when the scene of the funeral takes place but a uh, powerful cinema so if you're looking for something meaty and important to get into this weekend in the cinema you could do a lot worse than going to see Till now as I was doing the rounds over Christmas I, I spoke to a few people about different things that they'd been watching and I've said to you before people come up and talk to me about movies no one recognises me physically sure who am I but occasionally people recognise my voice I say this with no trace of false humility but it's people often say to me are you that guy on the so I get talking to them about films and on three separate occasions over the Christmas period people said to me you were right about Avatar the way of water because I told you I thought it was utter nonsense and you know if this is the future of cinema you can keep it it was a glorified screensaver and I take no pleasure in saying that but that's what I said about it at the time and everyone who came up to me to talk about it agreed so I just want you to know that so if you're thinking about because Avatar is still on round the clock in the cinema I really think it's best avoided and having canvassed opinion over the Christmas a lot of people agree with me. If you've seen Avatar, if you're planning on going to see Till, please get in touch with me. You can email me screentime at newstalk.com or I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy. Because tonight, in this very room, a murder will be committed. My murder. You will have to closely observe the crime. Consider what you know about each other. Know that across the island I've hidden clues. Some may be helpful, some may misdirect. That's for you to determine. But if anyone can name the killer, tell me how they achieved the murder, and most importantly, what was the motive? That person wins our game. Any questions? Uh, wait, what do we win? I, what do you mean, what do you, what do you, what do you want? No, no, nothing. I just, I, I just thought maybe there was a prize or something. I, I, an iPad or like. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. No, no. The winner gets an iPad. And that was a clip of Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, which is going gangbusters on Netflix, and it seems everyone has watched it. I think it's that kind of Christmas thing. And the first one was. Very good. So is the second one, this is kind of a sequel, A Glass Onion. We have uh, Benoit Blanc, Daniel Craig returning. So what's it all about and is it any good? I'm joined by John Casey of News Talk to have a chat. John, how are you? Good, John. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. And to you. 
I'm going to do that all month just to spite Larry <laughs> David, you know. There's a statute of limitations here, John. <laughs> so listen, uh, people loved, I think it's fair to say, the first Knives Out movie. This is a sequel of sorts, even though there's very little in common with the second one in terms of plot and script. Is the second one worth the watch? Uh, definitely. It's a lengthy enough watch, two hours 20. Yes. Uh, I think a lot of people who saw the first one would have been Pleasantly surprised. I went into it and it was confounding my expectations and it gave me uh, a real hunger then for more of that stuff. Went back to like, you know, uh, Murder in the Orient Express, all that kind of it's stuff. It's very Agatha Christie. And people love that stuff. Yeah, it's, um, it's uh, post-Christie nearly. It's, it's, it's very uh, smart and kind of, you know, uh, very aware of itself. The first yeah. one was. This one even more so. There's more humour in it. Uh, great cast though I mean Edward Norton plays Miles Braun he's yeah so of, tell people sorry what's going I'll go on I'll through because there's, there's a lot of people kind of bouncing around in it but uh, I suppose the central catalyst to everything in it is this guy uh, Miles Braun played by Edward Norton he's like this demanding genius tech billionaire he's kind of buffoonish but he has his you know Greek island and he invites all his closest friends for a murder mystery weekend and, of course, Daniel Craig, Benoit Blanc, gets an invitation as well, uh, maybe mistakenly. Mm-hmm. He's a master detective and he's gone out of his mind during lockdown the pandemic <laughs> and is just dying for something. And we see him lying in a bath. We see him lying in his bath. He's having a Zoom call with some of his friends. A lot of celebs make appearances in it. Yeah. And uh, he just admits that he's he's flopping around and he, he needs something to get his teeth into. And he hopes that this will, will be it. So you have the likes of uh, Catherine Hahn is there. She's a Connecticut uh, governor. Um, uh, you have people like Janelle Monet, who's amazing in it. She yeah. plays kind of two characters. Essentially, she was the original business partner of Edward Norton's character. She got shifted out and didn't get to enjoy the riches for a, a variety of reasons, which I won't go into. And then you have Kate Hudson uh, playing a, a character called Birdie J, hedonistic, uh, kind of fashionista with a proclivity for social media faux pas. Mm-hmm. Basically, don't give this woman a phone. She'll say something racist. Um, and lots of great cameos as well. And Dave Bautista, he plays a, a guy called Duke Cody, who's a, a men's rights activist. So you can imagine how toxic he is. He has yeah. a load of gun on him at all times. <laughs> and he, he kind of just goes around uh, wrecking everyone's heads. But look, aside from that, they get this invitation, very elaborate invitation to this Greek island. Uh, and it starts and you think, OK, this is going to be teased out over the course of whoever, whoever long. Uh Daniel Craig's character solves the mystery in minutes before it even starts actually yeah he makes a show of Edward Norton and then the real kind of action starts yes now perhaps we should leave the plot there because we don't because these movies are labyrinthine if that's the correct word in terms of where they go and all I'm sensing you enjoyed this a lot I enjoyed it immensely I think when I watched the first one I was watching it I wasn't even, not with a critical eye. I was just kind of enjoying it, letting it wash over me. This one, from the start, I was like, okay, I'm going to take notice of this, notice of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, what was that reflection? What did he mean by this? I was really trying to, you know, figure it out as I went along, which what you do when you're reading Agatha Christie yeah. or watching all these murder mysteries. Um, and to be fair to Ian Johnson, uh, the director and writer, obviously, of Looper and Star Wars and everything else, um, he knows the stuff. It's mm-hmm. a very tight two hours 20. Yeah. He doesn't leave enough kind of breadcrumbs for you as a viewer to kind of, uh, untease it and then just be you know running down a clock you you are very much wrapped to the very end yeah. to know what the hell's going on yeah. but with that not giving away anything you do get an insight kind of maybe even 50 minutes in that the film you thought you were going to watch you're not going to watch yeah. it's totally different and that is very well done it is and to say anything more we're gonna, would pull yeah. the rug but uh, what about Craig as Ben? I'm even struggling to say Benoit, Benoit Blanc, Blanc yeah. a Southern gentleman. Southern How did you gents. find him? Because there was a slight bit of me thinking, is this turning into a caricature? 
Yeah, and I know he's kind of presented almost as such in the mm. first film. He, I mean, he he's in his tweeds and shirts in the first film, and that's it. In this, he's got the most ridiculous uh, swimwear, like he's dressing in his uh, linens and his you know his dinner. Like it's it's, it's very much um, his character is augmented in its kind of campness. You have Hugh Grant making appearances, clearly his husband. Um, and he kind of he gnaws and chews on his you know southern vowels like he really enjoys himself in it, but he has a dare I say a more kind of developed character in that I genuinely think he cares for the the people he's trying mm, to help in it. Yeah, uh, he's not just there to kind of flatter his own ego, which is what the first film kind of gave me. Yeah, he's he just goes in and he's shown everyone how great he is, and that's it. He does that and gets it out of the way kind of quickly. In this. Yeah, and then he he lets people have the stage. He's not just him in every scene. It's not just him, you know, uh, lost and, you know, I suppose kind of taught as to who's responsible. Yeah. There's so many kind of, I suppose, bright Hollywood lights in this. Yeah. He has to give them space to kind of shine. Yeah. It's, uh, your point is well made about, it's really tight. There's no fat on the bones. The script is brilliant. Edward Norton, always nice to see him. I think we both agree on that, right? Yeah, I love Edward Norton. I think for the longest time he's been... Uh, I suppose he's your archetypal quote difficult actor yeah. he likes to rewrite his lines he wants to say in the production I mean I'm sure it's hugely frustrating <laughs> if you're making a film and you've done all this work and you know someone like Rain Johnson is quite clearly a control freak as well He he's very very specific about mm. the kind of aesthetic and the characters he wants so I'm sure Norton was probably told look this is what you're getting and be quiet but he's so talented you want him in, in that ensemble like he shines as I said among a lot of really strong performances yeah. Um I mentioned Janelle Monet, who's her character is very interesting. Like the former business partner, she's there on the island. Why is she there? Yeah. It's very obvious why you're just there. Um, she's a lot of talent because she's a great oh, singer. Life oh, isn't amazing. fair, you know. So listen, what would you say stars wise for a Glass Onion? Uh, I think we're all spoiled now in this streaming era uh, <laughs> to have that land so quickly after the cinema. I mean, it's four stars. Yeah, if it's anything. Yeah. And again, I might watch it again in time because while they do kind of retrace it for you at the end. It's two hours twenty, and there's so much in there. Yeah. It's, it's a joy to look at as well. It looks beautiful. It looks beautiful. The Greek island is gorgeous. And I'll make one quick point: uh, the editing is incredible. Like I haven't seen a film this well edited mm. in years. Like it's Scorsese esque. Tell me, wow. Schumacher has a has a. a We're getting into the weeds, phone. folks. We are, He's we talking are. about editing. But, so uh, you're going to give it four stars. I would probably give it three and a half, but not a million miles away from four stars. It's a bit daft, but I guess that's what it's meant to be. I mean, it's a murder yeah. mystery on a Greek island, you know. Like Norton is kind of Bond villain light. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, very he, light. He does kind of carry his scenes well. Mm. There's a lot of humor in there. A lot of his stuff is kind of gets the biggest laughs. But it's a it's a hard act to do. Like mixing like obvious you know crime and murder with levity throughout. Like to do that, you can kind of lose a, a viewer very easily. But I think to to keep it the depth of the the, the subject matter and the ensemble, all all those plates spinning. It does it really well. I think yeah. four out of five is, is fair. Okay, fair enough. That's four out of five. I'm giving it three and a half, edging towards four on a different day. Glass Onion, well worth a stream. It's available on Netflix. John Casey, thank you very much. Thank you. Up next, long live my happy head. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now the first two weeks of January will see the now annual first fortnight mental health, art and cultural festival take place. One of the events that caught my eye was a screening of a Scottish documentary called Long Live My Happy Head. It tells of a Scottish comic book author with a brain tumour who's creating a novel and has made many graphic novels, but he's creating one to help loved ones 
prepare for his possible death. Well, imminent death if it's a terminal brain tumor. With his tumor's growth accelerating, the global pandemic forces him into isolation and traps his long-distance partner, Sean, in the States. The film beautifully explores how our humor and love can combat our fears of mortality when we are faced with the reminder that the clock is ticking. I've got to see it, and it is a poignant movie. It was directed by, or co-directed by Scott Austin McCowan, and I'm delighted to say he joins me now. Austin, how are you? Not bad, John. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Thank you. Now, listen, you know, a lot of interviews begin with, how did this come about? But it it just seems like such a, a pertinent question. Uh, you have at the centre this remarkable young man, and I say that as a 47-year-old, Gordon. How, how did this all come about? Had you known him? Had you come across him? Tell us. So, yeah, I mean, so Gordon lives uh, in the same part of Edinburgh that I live in. So I live in Leith, which is kind of north part of the city, the old kind of port town. Um, and we were, Will and I, the co-director, Will Hewitt and I, we were looking for an artist, like a comic book artist, to design titles for a previous film. Um, and we went along to the Edinburgh Comic Art Fair, which is held every November in a place called Out of the Blue Drill Hall here in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And it's a, there's, a, there's a community comics um, print workshop in there called Out of the Blueprint. And they champion like local community artists and things like that. And they, had, um, they can add, put on this whole comic art fair. So we went in there and we were browsing around and we spotted this guy in the corner with a bright pink, kind of really bold, bright pink garden shed as his backdrop. He was kind of standing in this bright pink garden shed, just looking a little bit sheepish. And we walked over and we were like, oh, how's it going? Can we have a look at your work? And we opened the comic books and we were just kind of, yeah, instantly sort of blown away. I think the first thing you see in the comic book that he was launching at that event uh, called Bittersweet, which is what we ended up basing the film around. Hmm. starts with him confronting his brain tumor in this kind of classic, you know, um, detective style noir, film noir interview where he's clicking on the light bulb and sitting him down to face him. And um, we were instantly kind of struck by the fact that he was challenging this obviously very difficult thing for him. And he was taking it on in in the medium of a comic book. And it felt like um, he was almost creating a bit of a, like a creative documentary of himself, the way that he then goes on to sort of lead the, the audience, the, his reader, through his journey and, and discuss the kind of feelings and emotions around it. So that was it. We met we met Gordon there and um, asked him if he wanted to go for a for a pint and if he would be up for us potentially starting to make a film. And he was he was kind of game for it. And I think mm. uh, yeah, the rest was kind of just followed on from there. I'm always fascinated when people make documentaries about someone else or or when it's open-ended, like no one knows what the future holds. Like you start this project with him and then, you know, things take turns in all sorts of directions with Gordon, sometimes joyful, but but sometimes very sad. I mean, you know, do you have much apprehension when you start a process like this, that you're, you know, you're working with someone, there's a global pandemic coming, the person you're working with has a life-limiting brain tumor. Like there must have been, as much as you were enthusiastic about the project, but a lot of apprehension. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a good good point. I think so. For Will and I, this was our first ever um, feature length documentary, and I think that was another thing that we hadn't quite anticipated how intense it was going to be. But when we met Gordon, he does, you know, he gives gives off this real sort of um, real vivacious sort of sense of life, and um, we were kind of lured into that because I mean, one of the things with brain tumors is they affect everyone 
very differently. It's a very unique experience mm -hmm. for, for everyone who's, who's uh, diagnosed. And Gordon was thankfully at the time when we met him in a really good place and had been healthy for a few years. He'd, he'd still had seizures and other side effects that would, that would creep up on him, but the tumor hadn't grown for a number of years and it allowed, it allowed him to develop the artwork and he was feeling really good. And we were kind of lulled into that false sense of security as well. We met him and he seemed very healthy from the outside and he was great fun to be around and he was doing all this fantastic artwork. And um, it was only when I think the pandemic hit and we realized just how vulnerable he was and coupled with sort of some developments with the tumor that we were mm. like, wow, this is actually quite intense. And we'd been quite naive to... Um, the realities that may face us along the way. And yeah, uh, the, yeah, the, we were quite, yeah, I think that's the thing. Will and I were quite keen. We thought we'd find an incredible story, an incredible protagonist for the film. Um, but we hadn't quite thought all the way out to one of the, one of the key things we wanted was we wanted Gordon to see the finished film. And mm -hmm. um, so that was something that we were really glad to have been able to, to, to do is Gordon yeah. got to see the finished film and he absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, so I think at that, with that goal in mind, we'd always thought, yeah, Gordon's going to be alive to see the film. And that yeah. also helped to trick us a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. And look, I wasn't going to necessarily let people know uh, Gordon's current state of affairs, but you've alluded to there. Gordon sadly passed away. Uh, is it is it strange to be in the world now with this document to him, with someone who's who, who's now since passed? Or is that weird to be, I suppose, on the trail with this movie now and bringing it to the world and bringing it to Dublin and the fact that he's no longer there? Or what, what are your feelings about that? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really sad that Gordon's not here to continue the journey with the film with us. Mm -hmm. um, it would be amazing for him to come to Dublin. You know, he loved, yeah. he did get to be part of a number of screenings and he got to witness people's reactions to the film. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned before, that was really important to us. And um, we know that it was also very important to, you know, his family and friends and they got to share incredible moments with him and the film gave him a lot to um, focus on and, yeah. uh, and kept him going a lot through the pandemic. I mean, you see in the film, we gave Gordon a, a GoPro and he was incredible at, documenting things yeah that, you know we didn't necessarily direct him through all that we were just like here you know film a little bit through and he really got into the process and yeah um i like to think that it was quite helpful for him to have another thing to to distract him yeah from, you know, absolutely what he was going through yeah yeah um but yeah it's very it's 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 sad not to have him here but we know that the film has it left a, it, it's part of a, a real important legacy that he's left behind and mm. his family and friends have all are big supporters of the film. They've all seen it and they love it. And, and Sean, his partner, is still very involved in mm. um, spreading the word and attending Q&As and being an ambassador for the film. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're, it's, it's, it's sad he's not here, but we're also very grateful to have this film that Gordon comes across as the beautiful, creative human, person, human being that he was. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's a fitting testament to him. And, you know, I hope it's coming across from listeners. They sh I mean, they should just watch the film, but uh, <laughs> until they do that, Gordon, what I really liked about him, he was a charismatic 
delightful fellow, like the type of guy I, I can imagine wanting to go for a beer with. But what I also like is, and forgive me if I'm speaking out of turn here, but sometimes, and I don't have firsthand experience of it as of yet, thankfully, but sometimes with people who have serious life-threatening illnesses, there can almost be a narrative of all this like bullshit celebration of, you know, fighting the good fight and all that. And maybe I'm being a bit harsh there, but like Gordon is so refreshingly honest during it about this really sucks. This is really hard. I may die. So I just, I think it's important to say to people that this isn't some happy clappy. We can overcome all of life's adversities. He really, he takes it on the chin, but it's tough at times, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's 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 a it's a good point. It's something that we discussed a lot while we were making the film. Is that the language that surrounds cancer diagnosis and and people who are who are, who are dealing with you know a big life changing illness that is often very difficult and mm. makes them feel very sick and uh, affects the people around them a lot as well. Which is another thing that Gordon really um, really cares a lot about. Mm-hmm. But we were careful not to, not so much careful because Gordon was doing it himself, but we wanted to avoid that language of yeah. cancer being a, a battle or a fight because yeah. it's not a fair fight. No, and, you know, no. People get, people get uh, diagnosed with all different kinds of cancers and it can be really quick, it can be really yeah. slow. And some people don't have the, the level of control to like go out there and have a, you know, go for a run every day and go swimming and eat healthy and all yeah. that stuff. It's, some people just don't have the choice and it's unfair to, you know, put that, metaphor of them sort of failing this battle yeah um, on them so we wanted it to be a lot more about gordon's gordon's uh, method is to encourage communication encourage people to talk about it talk about the realities of it and not put up that wall and mm. um, mm. which is yeah i think it's a really positive message that you've taken yeah. from the film so that's great and listen you know i, I grew up and i can't i don't know the thing in scotland but certainly when i was you know, a teenager, homosexuality was illegal in Ireland. It was punishable by death. And like, I it sounds bananas. 30 years ago, that was the case. Mental. But I know, but what I find remarkable these days, and it's so to be celebrated, and maybe it sounds like some kind of weird inverse homophobia. So I hope it doesn't sound that way. But I just love it when it's so unremarkable that the relationship Gordon is in happens to be a gay one. I mean, they're they're at a pride parade at one stage, but apart from that, there's no real mention of sexuality. It's just a love story between the two of them in the way that, you know, people celebrated Brokeback Mountain because it had nothing to do in a way with them being gay. It was just a heartbreaking love story. And this is an equally heartbreaking love story. And the fact that they're gay is entirely secondary and incidental and almost unimportant to it. Yes. Again, like a very interesting point. I I think um, part of that comes from the fact that, uh, yeah, Will and I are are two straight men mm-hmm. <laughs> and we just uh we met gordon we met sean and we were like wow this is an incredible relationship and that yeah. was the that was the angle it was never we didn't know sean uh, gordon was gay either until he told us about his boyfriend and it was like oh i mean you know it's yeah. just one of those things that that came up and we rolled with it and yeah you're right it's a love story before it's anything to do with it's not like a it, although we do go to the pride march it's not like a a gay activist film and it, oh. it is it is just part of the story and it's about yeah. and it could be anyone you know it's yeah um the relationship between the person with the tumor and the person looking after them and that could be anyone and i think that was the other message we wanted to help the film to convey is yeah. that you know it's it's not an isolated situation it's it's yeah it's just a unique um very unique and loving relationship that they're in and it's yeah nothing to do with 
them both being men necessarily. Yeah. And just to clarify, I'm not suggesting making a gay activist movie wouldn't be a good thing, but I'm just yeah. suggesting <laughs> this wasn't one. It was a love story primarily. Listen, let me ask you just finally then, I, I was reading about you guys, you and your partner, Will, and I, I find it interesting that you were described as people who are into kind of subcultures or, you know, Scotland's underbelly or, or something like that. Is, is that a fair assessment? Because, you know, Scotland's underbelly, I'd be fascinated by. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably a dangerous place to go. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, Will and I have been making films together since we actually, funnily enough, we met in Qatar, where the oh, World okay. Cup has just been held when yes. we were um, 16. We both got flown out there by our parents um, who had been made redundant during the, or who had come into difficulties with work during the 2008 crash. And there was a lot of work out there. So we both started school and yeah, that was kind of the start of our filmmaking relationship. But about four and a half years ago, we made a documentary about uh, the World Stone Skimming Championships, which happens <laughs> in Scotland on the West Coast. So that's, that seems to categorise as maybe being a little bit on the un- in the underworld. Um, <laughs> Certainly then, underwater, yeah, if you're not doing underwater, well, oh, well, yeah, boom, exactly. Boom. <laughs> but um, after that, I think, yeah, we were interested in what, what we found fascinating about Gordon was mm. that he was making this comic book, but it was about his health. Yeah. And that felt like something new. But then when we just, when we delved into it, it was, it's actually part of a, a growing sort of subculture within graphic novels and comic books, which is called graphic medicine. So that was like, all of a sudden we discovered this, un, yeah, previously unknown, uh, really rich um, community of mm-hmm. artists and authors that are also discussing other complicated matters. And um, there, yeah, there's a, a lot of really amazing work out there that, yeah. that people are creating. And it's really, um, that's an, so it was another thing that totally um, took us, took our, um, in, caught our interest. So yeah, I guess that is it. And, we're always on the lookout for people and stories that are uh, a little bit different or tell things mm-hmm. from a sort of different perspective. And yeah, um, our, our final, our, our, we made a short documentary about a, a pianist. Um, he's a young guy, like 23 when we met him, I think, and he's autistic and he uses the piano as his kind of um, way into the world. Like he's mm-hmm. always more comfortable when he's surrounded by musicians and playing mm-hmm. the piano and, he can sit in a room and play to you know hundreds of people. He finds that much easier than talking to people on an individual level. Although he's actually really good at that as well. But okay. um, character we've come across. Fascinating stuff. Well, listen, uh, Long Live My Happy Head is being shown on the 8th of January. That's Sunday in the IFI at 3.30. I would highly recommend it. I was talking to its co-director, Austin McCowan. Austin, a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much, John. My name is Galton. I'm 39 years old and and I have a brain tumour. I call my tumour Rick. Hello. After my diagnosis, I started writing and illustrating comics as I found they were the best tool to convey my thoughts and reactions to cancer. A clip there from the documentary Long Live My Happy Head. The poignant and inventive documentary and you heard me talking to its co-director Austin McCowan and that is going to be screened this Sunday the 8th of January at the IFI Uh, it's well worth a watch at 3.30 I should say so go to the ifi.ie if you'd like to attend or just show up and 
hope to get a ticket. Uh, it's part of the first fortnight mental health art and culture festival that runs from the 6th of January to the 15th of January. And in case you don't know, first fortnight is all about challenging mental health stigma through the arts and culture. And it's a fantastic festival that's been running for years now. This year, there's some great stuff happening. There's a celebration of hope on Nulag Mamon. That's the 6th of January with Erica Cody and Robert Grace. There's Dublin Story Slam with MC Sharon McManion. Splice, Timmy Creed's hurling-themed one-man show, which is taking place in the Crow Park Community Centre on January 7th and 8th. There's all sorts of great things happening, all to do with mental health and the arts and creativity. So check it out, firstfortnight.ie, and you will find all the events that are happening over the next two weeks. Up next, Paul Howard on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Howard, the well-known author of the Russell Carroll Kelly columns and books and indeed stage shows and so much more from Coppers the Musical to the great biography of Tara Brown, which I've actually read. I read the news today, oh boy. Uh, he also wrote uh, Coppers the Musical last year. It was on. Uh, he has a writing credit on Bad Sisters, which we rightly lauded on this show last year. And he's recently ghostwritten Roddy Collins' autobiography, intriguingly called The Rodfather. It is a pleasure to welcome to studio Paul. How are you? I'm great, great form. You yeah. like the intro? I was up I all night. <laughs> Listen, I always feel like I should stand up at the end of that. <laughs> Your favourite movie, I actually knew this because I'd heard you talk about it before, but yeah. it seems to me that there is no question whatsoever that this is your favourite movie. So tell our listeners what it is. It's Star Wars. Are we talking um, the first one or the trilogy? The first one, really. Okay. Um, the first one. Because I don't think I'd ever seen a film before Star Wars. I don't think ever, I'd ever sat through a whole movie. And I saw I saw Star Wars uh, in a cinema in Luton, uh, where I lived at the time on the day I made my first Holy Communion. Wow. And that is, seeing Star Wars was the, was the BC, AD moment in my life. Yeah. It demarcates my life. You wow. Know? Everything was different after that. I love other movies. Of course I do. But I, like I like, for instance, Casablanca. But I don't have a, a room dedicated to Casablanca <laughs> in my house like I do to Star Wars. <laughs> now we're going to have to be careful here because I'm not as big as you, but I'm a devotee, and five Christmases were spent collecting the toys. So I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. So yeah. we'll keep it generic, and I want to talk about you and your Star Wars fandom. But when you say ADBC. Has it been a result or has it caused you to do what you've done in life? Is it that important? Did it awaken your imagination that's led to you becoming a writer, do you think? Yeah, I think so. It fired my imagination as a kid. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was—I think I was quite a straight-laced child. I didn't really have much of imagine, um, an imagination. And maybe that would have come later on anyway. Okay. But there was just something about that film. It was so... There was just everything in the original Star Wars film. You know, there, there, there's a cowboy. Is essentially Han Solo is, mm. is like one of the old sort of cowboy heroes. And there's this uh, Luke Skywalker character, like, you know, who sort of dreams of heroism and and gets to, gets to blow up the Death Star. Mm. You know, there's a beautiful princess. Like my first, the first attraction I ever had to to a female was yeah. Princess Leia you know and you know you've got this walking 
carpet called Chewbacca <laughs> and you've got these uh, these droids like one is gold and then one is like this sort of like like a like a bin called R2D2 and he, he's apparently foul-mouthed but he swears in beeps and clicks and whistles <laughs> and then you've got the ultimate movie villain of all time yeah. like Darth Vader it, yeah. it is uh, you know and and his you know, in case you you don't know who the bad guys are, his army are called stormtroopers. Yeah. I mean, it was it for me as a kid. This world, the cantina scene, uh, which, which is just like a the worst bar in the world. I've actually been in worse since, I have to say. <laughs> but, but you've even written about particularly them. one in Tbilisi in Georgia. But we won't okay. go into that. But but this bar, you know, the, all these weird and wonderful creatures in it, uh, a chess set. Uh, that that you know that's hol- that has sort of hologram pieces that really kill each other and the Millennium Falcon. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had everything. Mm-hmm. It had for a child of of you know what was I eight years of age, mm-hmm. seven years of age when I saw it. It just blew my mind. And what about then? And you have to ask all Star Wars devotees about you the prequels and the sequels. How do you how do you feel about them? Um, differently because. I wa- I wasn't a child when yeah. I watched them. Yeah. Um so 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 differently. Um I di- I've enjoyed them all. Okay. Some of them you know we're watching Andor at the moment, yeah. you know. Yeah. And some of them I can't understand why they're so slow. <laughs> um the, I know they have to they have to sort of fill out 6 hours or 8 hours or 10 hours, but the original Star Wars movies like The Empire Strikes Back the Hoth scene and that, mm. it, it looms so large in my memory and mm. my imagination that at the Atat Walkers, I yeah. had and I still have the Atat Walker yeah. and all that. But it, it's actually about seven minutes or eight mm. minutes or ten minutes or something mm-hmm. of the film, you know. Um, and, and it just moves so fast and suddenly you're on to Dagobah and then you're on to Bespin Cloud City that the... the you know, everything kept changing yeah. so quickly. You're just in new worlds every sort of 10 or 15 minutes. But I find with a lot of the, these prequels on the Disney Channel, uh, these off, offshoots on the Disney Channel, I, I think they move too slowly mm. for, for, for my liking. Yeah. Um, I did, I liked, I mean, I can pretend I didn't, but I, but I did when, when, when Han Solo and Chewbacca were back on yeah, the screen again. The Force Awakens. Yeah. It, it uh, I mean, yeah, I know. I was really, it's ludicrous to talk like this, but I got really emotional in <laughs> no, the cinema, I know. you know? I know, I teared up, yeah. you know, and this, that, that that line, you know, Chewie, we're home. It's, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, it, it just brought me right back to childhood. And from what I gather, it runs deep with the whole family, doesn't it? Did, did, yeah. Don't you go as a family or didn't you when The Force Awakens came? I have a memory of you yeah, saying that Yeah, we somewhere. all went together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I brought my lightsaber. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and, and He's of, not joking. <laughs> and in the middle of the cinema, like just as the just as Lucasfilm comes up on the screen, I went and it has the, <laughs> does the noise and everything. You know, it's quite quite a good one. Got it in La Bamba or something when I was however old, okay. far too old to be collecting choi- toys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, my family—they're all mad about it as well. Um, I never like so I collected the toys as a kid, mm-hmm. but I never stopped collecting them. Yeah, and the reason I never stopped collecting them was my parents never stopped buying them for me for okay. birthdays and Christmas. So when I was like, you know, maybe twenty nine, thirty years of age, I got this enormous talking Jar Jar Binks for Christmas. You know, <laughs> and that's all they ever bought me. They never bought me sensible adult presents. Yeah. They just bought me Jar Jar Binkses. And even though you you cite Star Wars in particular, but if we look at the trilogy, the moment where 
Luke is told Dart is his dad and he mm. says it to him. To, to my childhood memory, that was, it honestly was the biggest, one of the biggest events of my imagination as a childhood. Do you remember hearing that, that Darth yeah. Vader was Luke's? I, we're in nerd territory here yeah. now, but I was bowled over by it. Yeah, we, we, I saw that one in the forum in, in Glassdool mm-hmm. and um, my dad took us on a Saturday afternoon and didn't tell us he was taking us and it was a surprise. And in those days, I mean, maybe there were spoilers, but we're probably too young yeah. to actually listen. Yeah. You know, yeah, we didn't yeah, have yeah, the attention yeah, yeah. span to be listening to radio <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> but that moment, yeah, when he says, no, I, 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 Luke, I am your father. And Luke says, no, that's impossible. Yeah. And that's what I felt. I felt that's impossible. Yeah. How could that be his dad? <laughs> it was, yeah, I, I, we walked home. I remember we were living in Monkstown Farm at the time. We were living with my grandmother and we walked from... from uh, Glassdool to Monkstown and I can just remember thinking about it the whole yeah. way home. Totally bent my head. Didn't expect it. Uh, and and of course, you had to wait three years for the resolution Imagine. of this story. And Imagine. now with TV, oh, um, the way it works, you, you know, you, you just have to wait a season. You just yeah. have to wait six months or something. Can I tell you something? This is about you, but we're in fandom right. territory here. I, in the Adelphi, which you remember, I, about a year after The Return of the Jedi came out, my brother took me and my best mate to see Star Wars The Emperor Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi all in one day. They were yeah. doing a special screening of it. Yeah. And genuinely, when I look back on my life now, it's possibly the reason I'm sitting here. I'm not sure, because the idea that you could go to the cinema for a whole day and watch yeah. Star Wars, like when I look back at my children, that's one of the highlights of my children. Yeah. I'm not joking. So I'm just saying, I get how a movie can affect you that much. I do find it hard to believe that you say you were you didn't have much of imagination up until now. I'd say people can't imagine that. I don't think I did. I mean, I think I was quite a straight-laced kid, but I mean, I was very young, you know, yeah, I so, suppose. So, so who knows what I was <laughs> like, really. But I, I talking about the triple bill, I remember, I was a member... Did you the, go to that? Can I, you no, remember? I was a member of the Star Wars fan club. Okay, of course you were. My membership card, I remember, still remember my membership number. It was E0569722, <laughs> right? So that's burned on my imagination. And my... my the, the force is strong with this <laughs> it one. It still is. And, so I can't remember, I can't remember the alarm codes to our house right <laughs> I can't remember I can't remember my uh, pin number like I'm in the bank like one last chance and uh, but I remember EO569722 but so I was a member of the fan club and this was around 90 1982 83 mm-hmm. 84 that kind of time and Return of the Jedi had just come out and in those days if you if you missed a film in the cinema you, it, it just felt like half a lifetime yeah. before you got to see it again because, uh, v, you know, v, VHS video recorders were still in their infancy. Um, it took probably three years mm. before a film actually was on video yeah. and about seven years before it was on TV. On RT on Christmas so, Day or whatever. So, yeah. to, so I, we saw, I saw Star Wars in 1977, 78. I saw Empire Strikes Back in 1980. And I hadn't, I'd never seen them again afterwards. When mm. Jedi came out, I hadn't, I still hadn't seen them wow. again. So now I can watch them every day. When I retire, I will. But back then there was this lag time. So when I was in the Star Wars fan club, I got a letter one day and it was um, um, a cinema on in Leicester Square. 
uh, we were living in, in Dublin at the time, is in Leicester Square, and they were doing the triple bill, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return yeah. of the Jedi. And this just blew my mind. And I remember showing it to my mum and dad, and, like, we, we didn't really have any money, like, you know, and... Um, but I remember being upstairs in my bedroom and I could hear everything in the house, like, you know, and I could hear my mum and dad talking about whether they could get the money together oh, dear. To, to bring me to London to see this, like, you know, and they could, you know, they couldn't yeah, in the end, yeah. but just hearing them talk about it, like talk about how I needed to see yeah. this thing. Oh, bless. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start welling up. I, know, I mean, I would have, yeah. I would have given an organ away to go. Yeah. Listen, that is a wonderful choice and clearly, clearly is your favourite movie. Tell me this, we always ask kind of non-movie people, have you ever acted? Yeah, I did. I did some, I, I, I was part of a show called Irish Pictorial Weekly. Yes. Um, about, must be, 10 or 11 years ago now um, Barry Murphy yeah, yeah. brainchild on, and it was on RTE and he asked me I, I, I mean I'm, I'm terrible actor like you know my wife is my wife is doing a play at the moment in the Whale Theatre in the Greystones called God of Carnage and I'm running lines with her okay. at night you know and she has to keep saying to me Paul stop just stop <laughs> trying to act right and, just read uh, the lines <laughs> just read the lines just say them just read them out and uh, but, but Barry asked me to appear as um, one of the Quinns and 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 then also as uh, David Drum. Okay. And the fun of it was oh, getting yeah. made up. Like I got the bald wig on to play David Drum, and I I think I had a pretty good approximation of the accent. Like I'm quite good at voices. Yes. And, and that kind of thing. But I can't act. I can remember the lines. I can I can do the voice. But it's quite clear that I know I shouldn't be there. Okay. And even watching those scenes back, I'm looking going, I shouldn't be there. I was also in Amy Huberman's uh, uh, most recent Finding TV Joy. show, uh, Finding Joy. And um, I, I played, I was working behind the counter in Abra Cavabra uh, oh, when okay. Amy came in. And we kind of ad-libbed that scene. John right, Butler, okay. the director, asked me would I be in it. And, you know, I know Amy well. And so I started to do it. And we sort of ad- ad-libbed this comedy yeah. scene which worked a little bit better because I wasn't as you mm. know kind yeah. of I'm acting now Lego man like you know <laughs> that's what I look like something from a Lego movie that's how <laughs> stilted I am well listen it's a matter of public record in this show in this station that I said Bad Sisters was one of the great shows of last year on Apple TV it's returning it you know and the, they said you wrote on it what what did you do on that did you write an episode did you collaborate how did that work yeah I wrote episode 8 okay um, and then I was I was part I was part of the sort of collaborative process as well but I I was I was brought to the project quite late in the okay. day um and a lot of it was done over Zoom so it wasn't like it wasn't like sort of the classic writer's room experience yeah. where you're all sitting around a boardroom table firing out ideas it was done over Zoom yeah I was given an episode 8 to write um I had I had seen the Belgian series yeah. that it was based on and I I really enjoyed it but I knew from the when I read the first four episodes of this of Bad Sisters Sharon Horgan wrote episode one I I knew from that moment that the tone the texture of this was completely different Um, and I was quite so 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 essentially I know what all the beats from my episode and this has to happen this 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 and this this and then uh, so I wrote my episode I was kind of fortunate in that I knew who'd been cast. The, the show yeah. had been cast by the time I sat down. Okay. So I knew who I was writing for, you know, Eve Hewson in that yeah. case. And I knew I was writing for Brian Gleeson when I wrote that character's voice. Oh. It did a little bit easier. Yeah. But it's brilliant. I mean, I enjoyed it so much. It's, it's, it, I'd never 
you know, I've never written for a big show before. It's like nothing I've ever done before. It is a reminder of that thing that I always tell people about writing, that writing is rewriting and never more so okay. than when you're when you're writing for television. Because, you know, I heard Roddy Doyle say recently, he was talking about Roddy writing for television. Uh, and he said that when he wrote The Family, he said he discovered that it's quite easy actually to fill up a page uh, of of, uh, of of in using the screenwriting software, yeah. you know. So two men walk into a room. One says, "Hi, hi, how are you? Not too bad. How are you? Not too bad." And you discover you've got you've I've got a whole page. page done already. <laughs> I, but by the end of the process, when you're doing your fifteenth or sixteenth draft, the trick is to get them two men into the room without saying anything because you're so tight for right, space. Okay, and okay. that's what that's what TV writing is. Just quickly talking of TV, we haven't mentioned Ross O'Carroll, but you're probably tired of talking about him, but. I presume people have suggested to you before turning that into a TV show. Yeah, I mean, we've gone down the roads uh, on three Development hell, different. is it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult. Um, I think the toughest thing, the challenge we face with bringing Ross to the screen is that um, Ross doesn't really have any purchase outside of Ireland. I, I, I was in a, Waterst- a branch of Waterstones in London um, about a year ago, and uh, I saw... Uh, two or three of the Ross or Carol Kelly books. I know if I go back there tomorrow and go back to London tomorrow, <laughs> they'll still be there. You know, they doesn't really sell. Okay. It's kind of it's very much an Irish thing. Is it too local? As um, in, in that way? I think a lot of the jokes, the pop cultural references are too parochial, yeah, you know. Yeah. So uh, like one of the books was translated into Russian and the translator, the biggest difficult, he would just ring me. It was the it, the language wasn't too bad. I thought the language would be the okay. hard thing, but it was what is Avoca Ham Weavers? You know, what is Reynard's nightclub? Okay, you know, yeah. who is Grania Showiga? Having to explain all of these yeah. characters and uh, venues and, and what they mean okay. in an Irish context. So, I mean, there's a little bit of me I, I, is kind of relieved that I never had to compromise yeah. those elements yeah. of it because if, 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 maybe an English studio got involved and, and wanted to make it I might have had to tone down some of those yeah. jokes that are that are ours that yeah. we, we know when we say Evoca Hemweavers we know it signifies a certain kind of kind of urban snobbishness yeah. about food yeah. and stuff like that you know? that makes a lot of sense and listen finally I've better let you go because we're nearly 20 minutes but you have another children's book coming out yeah, next uh, month yeah about uh, two years ago now I wrote a book called Aldrin Adams and the Cheese Nightmares yeah. um, which was about this kid who when he ate cheese very very late at night and thought about somebody really really hard he could enter their dreams and their nightmares and help them cope with their problems. And um, it was it was great fun. I have a cheese addiction and I'm cursed with nightmares every time I eat cheese. <laughs> when we go to restaurants, I eat cheese at the end of the meal time and I have nightmares. So that's where this idea came from. So I did one book and then, um, so the sequel, I finished writing it last year and it's coming out the first week in February and it's called Aldrin Adams and the Legend of Nemesis. Well, we will look forward to that. His favourite movie is unquestionably Star Wars. It's a delight to talk to Paul Howard. Paul, thanks a million. Thanks a lot, John. You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? Should I have? It's a ship that made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. I've outrun Imperial starships, not the local bulk cruisers, mind you. I'm talking about the big Carillion ships now. She's fast enough for you, old man. What's the cargo? Only passengers, myself, the boy, two droids, and no questions asked. What is it, some kind of local trouble? 
Let's just say we'd like to avoid any imperial entanglements. Well, that's the real trick, isn't it? And it's going to cost you something extra. 10,000, all in advance. 10,000? And I'll buy our own ship for that. But who's going to fly it, kid? You? You bet I could. I'm not such a bad pilot myself. I don't have to sit here and listen. Alec Guinness, Mark Hamill, and of course, Harrison Ford from the first Star Wars movie, A New Hope, is what what they've called it retrospectively. When I was a kid, it was just Star Wars. But anyway, and my thanks to Paul Howard, who was chatting to me about it as his favourite movie. It also happens to be his birthday, so happy birthday, Paul. That's it for this week. Just remind you, if you want to get in touch with me at any stage, you can tweet me, John underscore Fardy, or you can email screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. on Newstalk. Let me wish you a happy new year again. There, I did it again. It's three times in this show. And uh, wish you all a happy remainder to the rest of your weekend. And I'll talk to you next week.